Welcome to California Now, a podcast produced by Visit California. I'm Satirius Johnson. The prestigious Forbes Travel Guide has just released their global ratings for luxury spas. And no surprise, California comes out on top. It's the largest concentration of five-star spas, um, 10 five-star spas out of the entire United States. And we'll visit with our friend Anne-Marie Brown, who shares her favorite national monuments, all places of striking natural beauty. Plus, an historic mission that celebrates the return of their feathered friends every year. So for us, March becomes a community celebration, and we welcome the swallows back to build a nest at the mission. That's right. The swallows really do return to Mission San Juan Capistrano. It's all coming up on California Now. Last year, we learned how Forbes Travel Guide sends anonymous inspectors around the country to rate luxury accommodations. And today, we'll look at what some consider to be the ultimate indulgence. We welcome back Amanda Frazier, Executive Vice President of Ratings for Forbes. She's here with brand new ratings for California's spas. Thanks for joining us, Amanda. Thank you for having me back. It's a pleasure to talk to you again. So, you know, to be honest, I thought that luxury hotel inspector was a dream job, but the job title of anonymous spa inspector just sounds too good to be true. Is it? You know, uh, there's never too many massages or facials one can have, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, it's, a, it's certainly a wonderful job and it comes part and parcel as being a hotel evaluator too. So uh, tell, tell us a little bit about what it's like to be a spa inspector. Well, all our evaluators that are sent to a hotel, if the hotel has a spa that is determined by us in ratings uh, that needs to be evaluated because we want to consider it um, you know, for an ultimate award for the list, um, they are asked to cover the spa too. Um, most often when they're uh, on site at the hotel as part of that guest experience, and sometimes if it's possible um, as an independent experience as well. So, so what are the criteria for the ratings that were just released by Forbes Travel? guides? Well, we have the same stringent set of standards that we do for hotels. Um, There are less standards because, of course, we're spending less time in a spa. Uh, The requirement for spas to achieve at the five-star level is a little more stringent than in hotels. So hotels are required to achieve 90% for a five-star rating. In a spa, it's 92 and then 82 for a four-star. And then the other difference is we do not evaluate uh, spas at the recommended level. So you can either be a five-star spa or a four-star spa, um, and those are the two awards that we offer. Um, but the way that we approach it and our philosophy is exactly the same as we do in hotels. So for us, service is key, and our algorithm around the process is still weighted heavily to service, actually 75% to 25% facility. Uh, The facility is exceptionally important, those key factors as far as the quality of the product and the design aspect are what help us determine if we should be looking closer at a spa. But ultimately, when we get there, it's the service delivery that, that tells all. Why are the standards for spas even higher than for hotels? Why so demanding when it comes to spas? Um, I wouldn't say that the standards are necessarily harder or um, higher. Um, the, the score requirement is higher, but also you're spending much less time um, in a spa. And really, that 92% is driven by the performance of the spas that we're evaluating globally. That is the average score of a five-star spa. And actually, they're performing a little bit higher um, in in recent evaluations that we've done. So uh, this is a good sign that the spas are really performing strongly. 
So, you know, we're generally talking about extremely elite spas, kind of the top spas in the world. And if I'm not mistaken, California actually rules in that area. Is that right? You do, actually. Um, spas in California, um, actually, you have 10. Um, it's the largest concentration of five-star spas, um, 10 five-star spas out of the entire United States. And actually falling um, just behind is Macau with nine five-star spas. So California's uh, just pipped them at the post there. <laughs> so, you know you, you know, you mentioned the five-star rating and the four-star rating. What's the difference mm-hmm. between a five-star spa and a four-star spa and, and say one that maybe just didn't quite make the cut? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. You know, not unsimilar to hotels. What we typically see in a spa is that whether you're at a four-star spa or a five-star spa, typically, and it's not all cases, but typically the quality of the treatment and the execution of that treatment is excellent and very, um, very, very similar in in performance. Um, Where we can see a drop-off at the four-star level is that it's just sometimes not quite as rounded. So for instance, we evaluate the spas beginning with a reservation experience, and we also look closely at the way that you're greeted on arrival and how you're treated upon departure. Um, So oftentimes those areas can fall a little bit short um, and and that's ultimately the difference. It's that consistency and uh, and being well-rounded. So before we dive into real specifics, and we are talking about elite spas here, how much money should one budget, say, for the spa portion of my vacation? Oh, gosh. Well, it can vary. It depends where you are and what destination you're in. Um, And the price doesn't necessarily dictate the quality. Um, But you really should be budgeting at least $200 because, of course, you want to consider whether you're having one or two treatments and um, obviously uh, leaving a uh, well-deserved gratuity for for the services. That sounds actually pretty affordable for what you're getting. I mean, you're kind of getting uh, you're you're getting to kind of check yourself out of your everyday worries and troubles and really treating yourself, especially when you're on vacation. So that actually sounds like, um, you know, something that's a really good uh, deal. It, it really is. When you think about how much money you spend to go out for a night to an opera or a show or a big dinner, um, you know, that lasts, you know, a couple of hours, I think it's I think it's really good value as well. And especially if you consider that spas will often tell you, please arrive 15 minutes early so that you can change and enjoy the facilities. And I think uh, I know when we go, we certainly try to get there at least a half an hour, if not an hour early. You can you could make a day of it um, with some of the wonderful facilities that are out there now. Absolutely. Uh, are, are there aspects to the California spa experience that are unique to the state? Um, you know, we're certainly seeing California hold its own with what's happening globally in terms of spa design. I think one of the most hotly anticipated spas we're looking at coming out of California um, this year is the new Scent Spa by Rosewood at Miramar Beach in Montecito. Um, that's uh, looking like it's going to be a fabulous experience um, and really uh, cutting edge in terms of its design. And, you know, there's, a, there's this whole notion of wellness or, you know, general well-being, both mental and physical. That's a real California ideal. And where better to get it done than at a spa, at a California spa, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think there's been a big shift in the way people think about spa. You know, not so long ago, I think you thought, well, my shoulders hurt me, so I'm going to go and have a spa day or get a get a massage. And now I think with the education um, that's out there and the amount of spas that are opening um, and doing such a fabulous job, they're really retraining us to think that being proactive about your health and looking at it as a complete wellness approach is, is a much better way to enjoy them. All right. Well, let's drill down a little bit on some specifics. Let's start in the north of the state. I'm guessing the Bay Area 
must have a lot of great spas in the San Francisco area and outside the city in Napa and Sonoma. Are there any standouts in the Bay Area or in wine country? You know, there's there's so many to mention. I could probably just say, well, take a look at our list because we love them all. Um, you know, from an urban spa perspective, um, one of uh, the spas that we love, it's a, a four-star spa of ours uh, in San Francisco, right there in the middle, is the Ramit Spa at uh, the St. Regis San Francisco. Um, I think, you know, with the hus- hustle and bustle that you have in a city, to be able to walk into a spa and feel completely disconnected from that is um, is always a treat, and, and they offer that there. Where else in California have you found truly world-class spas? Are there any in, say, you know, remote or perhaps surprising locations? So I think one of my favorite standouts in the northern part of the state, even though there's so many to mention, um, would be Spa de Soro at Chateau de Soro um, up uh, near Yosemite. Um, they actually have a very small spa, very discreet. Um, and I think if anyone staying at uh, Chateau de Soro, a stop at that spa would be wonderful. It's very destination-centric and um, very luxurious. Uh, what about Los Angeles? Uh, do your ratings show any new developments there? You know, they do, actually. We have a new five-star spa uh, in uh, in Beverly Hills, actually. Last year, the Waldorf Astoria Beverly Hills Hotel won a five-star award, and we couldn't be more proud to add the La Prairie Spa to our list this year for 2019. So that spa, which is run by a fabulous team, actually is one of our newest five-star winners um, out of L.A., so we're really excited. Was that is that a new spa, or what, or did they just up their game and they got the five stars? They up their game a lot. Um, they were always a very strong, highly performing spa, but you know they've just gone ahead and, and really put every single effort that they had into that. And um, you know it's a very consistent experience. Um, you know you have all the little small touches there at that spa, um, apart from obviously the, the the key things that we look for, such as a beautifully designed facility and very technically app staff you know there's the little things such as um, a personalized note in your locker when you arrive and a little pouch um, filled with some sample of prairie products so um, they really do all the small things and you know the devil is in the details as they always say right that's right exactly and you're talking about la prairie spa at waldorf astoria in la yes yes amanda are there are there any other spas that really stand out in your mind as just truly exceptional that people should know about so yes, another um, debut spa on our list for 2019 actually is also in LA. We're really excited to add the Four Seasons uh, LA at Beverly Hills Spa to our list. It's a brand new four star and um, it's another great urban choice. And you know, I think I would be remiss without mentioning um, another addition uh, to our list last year as a new five-star hotel, Meadowood. Um, and they actually have a beautiful five-star spa. Um, that's been a five-star for some years and continues to provide consistent experience. And that's obviously in the Napa Valley there. And it's just beautiful. Do you remember your first experience as an inspector yourself, a spa inspector? You know, I do. I, I, I obviously, I'm not going to name the spa, but I do remember thinking, wow, they have done such a fabulous job um, to make me feel comfortable. And all my uh, inhibitions of what being at a luxury spa uh, would be really just went away. And for me as a new inspector, learning our standards at the time and then writing that report, it really made complete sense to me why these requirements were so important in distinguishing the best from the best. So it sounds like basically, you know, you might spend like $200 for a spa experience, but you come out feeling like a million bucks. 
You certainly do. And then obviously, if you're an evaluator, you go away and you type the report. So uh, if you're a real guest, you get the, the true luxury of going to sleep, right? <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Thanks so much, Amanda. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Amanda Frazier is Executive Vice President of Ratings for Forbes Travel Guide. Their brand new ratings for the Ultimate Spa Experience have just been released and we'll link to them on our site, visitcalifornia.com slash podcast. Coming up, one of the great traditions of spring in California, the swallows return to Mission San Juan Capistrano. But first, a visit from Anne-Marie Brown, our expert on all things outdoors. She'll share with us her favorite national monuments. You're listening to the California Now podcast. California has nine national parks, more than any other state in the Union. And these majestic parks are among the most iconic outdoor destinations in the world. Think Yosemite, Death Valley, and Joshua Tree. But what many people don't know is that the Golden State also has 13 national monuments. And our go-to outdoor expert, Anne-Marie Brown, is going to tell us about five of her favorites. Hey, Anne-Marie. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. Sure. So, you know, national park, national monument, what's the difference? Hmm, Yeah, a lot of people are confused by that. And honestly, to the visitor, not much. Um, They're both amazing places that have incredible scenic and recreational value. (laughs) Bureaucratically, it's all about who designates them and who oversees them. So only Congress can make a national park. But presidents, uh, thanks to an old law, the 1906 Antiquities Act, they can designate national monuments. So bureaucratically, they're really different. But in terms of the visitor experience... Not much different except that national parks are almost always a lot busier. And the reason is as soon as a conserved area of land gets the national park designation, suddenly people are coming from all over the world to come see it. So just those words, American National Park, suddenly, you know, ups the visitation numbers by quite a lot. You know, and interestingly enough, monuments are often upgraded to parks, and only Congress can do that. Like in California, Joshua Tree used to be a national monument. Pinnacles used to be a national monument. But Congress can say, no, we're going to make them parks now. And it increases their level of protection. And it also increases the amount of money they get and how they're they're treated by the Park Service. So it's a it's a greater protection level. But it also sometimes means, you know, more people come as well. All right. So let's dig in. Uh, you know the drill for this top five lightning round We're going to ask you to rank your favorite national monuments from number five to number one with a few insights as to why each made your list. All right. So are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay. So which national monument comes in at number five? Okay. I'm going to give number five to Carrizo Plain National Monument. And Carrizo Plain is uh, east of San Luis Obispo by about 60 miles. It's kind of way out in the middle of California by itself, and it is huge. Um, This is California 300 years ago. It's the largest single native grasslands remaining in California. Um, You know, California used to be vast savannas. And most of that, of course, has been developed and it's gone. But Carrizo Plain, it still exists exactly the way it did three centuries ago. People call it California's Serengeti. Um, Mm. It's home to tule elk. It's home to pronghorn. So they're they're grazing just like they did ages ago. Mm. Um, And you can go see them just by driving around. There are actually a number of endangered species, animal species, that that exist in that national monument. And the wildflowers, um, from February to April, because it's grasslands, it comes to bloom. And it is a kaleidoscope of colors, just unbelievably beautiful colors in the springtime. 
Wow, I've seen photos of it, and it is pretty impressive to see what seems like miles and miles of of colorful wildflowers just out there. Yeah, it's really something to see. And a lot of people don't realize, too, there's some really important Native American rock art um, in Carrizo Plain. It's an area called Painted Rock. It's actually a uh, rock amphitheater that was used by the Chumash Indians for thousands of years. And uh, it's beautiful art, worth worth going to see, very well preserved. All right, what what's your number four? I'm going to give number four, I think, to one of the newest national monuments. This is one that was created by President Obama in 2016, so it hasn't been around that long. And it's called Sand to Snow National Monument. And that's west of Joshua Tree National Park and sort of between Joshua Tree and San Bernardino National Forest, so down uh, east of Los Angeles. It's called Sand to Snow, and that's exactly what it is. It starts in the desert floor, at the bottom of the desert floor, and rises all the way up to the top of the tallest peak in Southern California, which is Mount San Gorgonio. And that's 11,503 feet. I hope I got that right. I think it's 11,503. People call it all grayback. It's an incredible hiking trail to get to the top of San Gorgonio. Um, so, you know, we've got this snowy, high peaks, alpine, and then we've got the desert floor. Hmm. Um, and this one monument, which is huge, it's almost 2 million acres, it's 1.8 million acres, protects all of it. That's pretty amazing. You can go from from a desert to a snow-capped mountain in just one area. It's a, let's keep on going, though. Number yeah. three, what's your number three? Mm, number three. I'm going to give number three to Lava Beds National Monument, which is way up in the northeastern part of California near the little town of Tulake. And uh, this is high desert California. There's a lot of sagebrush and junipers. And what makes lava beds extraordinary is that it has more than 700 caves. And they're not caves like limestone caverns underground. They're lava tube caves. So they tend to be, you know, more horizontal in shape and not so much up and down vertical. Um, and you can go visit them. And this is the neat thing about it is that 25 of those 700 caves have marked entrances and you know, I don't want to say develop trails. There's no trail in them. But they're, you can find your way through them as long as you have a flashlight. Oh, that's amazing. Really, just amazingly fun to do. And anybody can do it. You don't need any experience to do it. And it's also kind of hot sometimes in the summertime there. So the caves are always a real comfortable 55 degrees or so. You sometimes even want to bring a, bring a fleece with you. A lot of neat stuff to see there. There's a lot of really interesting Native American history Beautiful panel of rock art with 5,000 uh, Native American carvings on it at Petroglyph Point. Absolutely worth seeing that. It's some of the most outstanding Native American art in the country, let alone in California. Okay, runner-up time. Which national monument comes in at number two? Mm, I'm going to give two to Santa Rosa and San Jacinto National Monument. And that has to be probably the longest name for any park anywhere. It's <laughs> Santa Rosa and San Jacinto National Monument. Right. That's two different mountain ranges, and that's why the name's so long. Um, this one, I think of it as Land of the Bighorn Sheep because uh, this is – if you want to see bighorns and they're they're so majestic and so beautiful, those animals, um, this is the place you're going to see them. And the neat thing about Santa Rosa and San Jacinto National Monument is that there's access all over the place. If you go down to Palm Springs, any of the towns in the Coachella Valley, Palm Springs, Palm Desert, Rancho Mirage, there's trailheads to get into this national monument. So you can hike right from town, hmm. right, which is amazing. Yeah. Um, you can ride the Palm Springs Aerial tra Tramway, and from Palm Springs, you're gonna you're gonna rise up eight thousand feet uh, to eight thousand feet. It's a six thousand foot change. The tramway takes you up in fifteen minutes, right? And you're on Mount San Jacinto, and you're in the high alpine again. 
So that's incredible. Even on the hottest day of summer in the desert, it might be 110 degrees down there. Up on Mount San Jacinto, it's going to be 80, 75 maybe. Wow. Okay, here we are at the end of our top five list, Anne-Marie. What is your favorite, your best national monument in the state of California? (laughs) I'm going to choose Devil's Post Pile National Monument for my absolute favorite in California. It's it's a hard, hard choice because there's so many good ones, but I'll take Devil's Post Pile. And here's, here's why. I mean... It's mountain scenery. And in fact, Dell's Post Pile used to be, years ago, part of Yosemite National Park. When Yosemite was first formed, Devil's Post Pile was in it. It's Yosemite scenery, right? It's that same beautiful high alpine scenery. The San Joaquin River flows right through the monument. And what Devil's Post Pile has is, of course, the Devil's Post Pile. And it is a 60-foot tall uh, pile of of basalt columns. So lava columns that have cooled and made these incredibly tall hexagonal columns. Hmm. I I can't even describe it. You just have to go see it. It's really something (laughs) to see. Um, (laughs) Absolutely worth the trip. And there's also a big, beautiful waterfall there, 101-foot Rainbow Falls, um, and major trailhead in the Ansel Adams Wilderness. So you can hike from there to just about anywhere. You can get on the Pacific Crest Trail. You can get on the John Muir Trail. You could hike to Yosemite. Uh, it's got beautiful campgrounds. It's got fly fishing. It's got everything we associate with national parks, you know. It's so much recreation, um, but it's just this very small national monument. Sounds amazing. And that's why it's your number one, I guess. Thanks so much, Anne-Marie. Thank you. Anne-Marie Brown's books are available at Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, REI, and your local bookstore. Plus, you can find links to all the locations we discussed today on our website. Visit California.com slash podcast. This is California Now, and I'm your host, Satirius Johnson. My next guest is tasked with overseeing the preservation of an important slice of California's history. Michelle Lawrence Adams is the executive director of Mission San Juan Capistrano, an Orange County chapel, landmark, and museum that dates back to the late 1700s. Around the same time America's founding fathers were signing the Declaration of Independence, St. Junipero Serra was establishing Mission San Juan Capistrano, It was the seventh of the 21 missions built in what was then known as Alta California in the province of Las Californias, New Spain. A lot has changed since then, and we're going to explore some of that history right now. Welcome to the California Now podcast, Michelle. I'm so excited to be here and share the mission with you all. Well, we're we're excited to hear. I mean, when I think of the year 1776, my mind races to things like the Revolutionary War and Philadelphia, the Liberty Bell, John Hancock signing the, his name on the Declaration of Independence. But there was an entirely different history happening here on the Pacific Coast. It's an amazing connection that we have with our founding period of our country and a vast territory of undefined future uh, separated the two ends. But on a parallel track, the development of our country and the development of state of California really happened at the same time. And I try to impress that upon our visitors about how exciting it is to actually have a landmark of this history in California. Now, I know you're the executive director there, but I'd love for you to put on your your tour guide hat for a few minutes and help listeners understand what they'd experience when they actually visit. How does the guided tour begin? 
Well, the minute you walk in the door, you're going to have somebody take you throughout the site and end up first at the historic bell wall, which daily the bells are rung at nine o'clock seven times in tribute to St. Sarah as the founder of the California Mission System. After you stop at the historic Caponario or the bell wall, you'll head over to the ruins of the Great Stone Church, which were listed on the World Monument Fund, most endangered top 100 places in the early 2000s. The monument still stands as a testament of tragedy and ruin and the weight of the walls that fell upon the Native Americans who are baptized Catholics that built that very stone church uh, causes us all to reflect. And they'll be surprised at the quiet that will come across them when they see these hallowed grounds and the remnants of the past that still stand. And as they go around the corner, they're going to see St. Sarah's Chapel, which is the most historically significant chapel in the state of California. Mass is celebrated there every day, and it is the only chapel standing in the state where St. Sarah, who I believe is a California founder in his contributions, where he actually celebrated Mass. So if you come to Sarah Chapel, you are going to a chapel where the founder himself actually walked these grounds. You'll see the wonderful Camino Real bell, and you'll see a crucifix that has a bullet hole over Christ's head that has withstood uh, the time and is a silver crucifix that's in one of our exhibits that people are always trying to figure out the story of what happened and why does Christ have a hole above his head Hmm. on that cross. I know Mission San Juan Capistrano is often referred to as the jewel of the missions. How did it get that name? Well, Father Sarah called it that. I think it's our location. We're right by the coast, and we are beautifully aligned with the environment and and the assets around us with the Dana Point Harbor. So I believe that that is how it happened. Father Sarah named it that. But it's a moniker that we take great pride in as stewards of the site. Our organization of employees and volunteers and donors, we do believe we are the leading mission in the state of California in terms of delivering a pristine experience and one that can change even the most hardy critic that California history may not be as relevant to them. But the 18th century is an important time in our country. And in California, there's something you can learn about it right here in your own backyard. That's great. Uh, Of course, March is a very special time at the mission because the swallows return every year. Can you give us a brief background on that? I mean, it sounds a bit like a legend or even a a biblical story or something. Uh, Do the swallows really show up every year? The swallows show up. Now, those little avian ambassadors are great friends to Mission San Juan Capistrano because in the 1930s, when the ruins were just standing out there exposed, the birds coming from Goya, Argentina would build hundreds and hundreds of nests. And they would come back March 19th. And the pastor at that time said, hey, let's have a party on St. Joseph's Day and welcome these little birds back because it was also his birthday too. And he wanted (laughs) to start a tradition. Uh, That tradition was captured in Leon Renee's uh, composing and songwriting abilities. Leon Renee's the man that wrote Rock and Robin, which was sung by Michael Jackson and a uh, chart topper. Well, he wrote When the Swallows Come Back to Capistrano, which in the 1930s became a, a chart topper too. And that inspired a whole host of generations to come to the mission. The 1940s, World War II generation vets, uh, people fell in love with the idea of the melancholy, forlorn, uh, bittersweet feelings of being separated from a loved one. And that's what the song inspires is a sense of return. And so that song kind of became the mission's theme song. And many generations thought, well, if those birds are coming back, I want to go check it out. (laughs) So for us, March becomes a community celebration. And we welcome the swallows back. But the environmental impact of development around us and the options to the birds coupled with drought and 
the diminishment of their habitat has caused us to hire the world's leading expert on swallows migration, Dr. Charles Brown. And so he's worked with us. And over the last few years, believe it or not, after an eight-year effort, we've been really successful at getting the swallows to build a nest at the mission. And so we're excited about the future. And once people come to the mission, just because the birds told them to come, and they discover everything else that we have to offer, uh, we're excited about that. They've done a a great um, contribution to the mission sustainability. Is there still like a party or a festival of some sort during that time when the swallows return? Well, for us, the the party of the swallows return starts early in March when people start asking us, what time are they going to get here? (laughs) And But the actual day that we celebrate is March 19th, which in the Catholic calendar is St. Joseph's Day. But in the community ecumenical calendar of San Juan Capistrano Mm -hmm. in Orange County, it's also the day we just celebrate their return. And we have dances and music and food and vendors and lectures. And, you know, I'm out there talking with our guests from all over the world. And so many people come for that. And if they happen to, they'll return the following weekend for the community's equestrian parade, which is another tradition that takes part as part of the swallow's return. I noticed your site even has a live swallow cam that lets people track the return of the birds in real time. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, the birds have done us a great favor at the mission, and they uniquely define us along with the song and along with St. Sarah's contributions and our efforts in preservation. They help us interface with the public and get them to come on and and experience the mission in their own unique way. You know, this is all really eye-opening for me. You know, when I travel to Europe, I always, you know, make a point of visiting some of those amazing old churches, say, in Italy or France or Spain, but I, I never really think of doing the same thing here in California. I mean, this is a fascinating piece of history right in the OC just down the road from the beach and a few blocks away from an In-N-Out burger. Well, exactly. And in the last 15 years, the Mission Preservation Foundation and our team have raised over 10 million net to go back to the care and rehabilitation of the site. So we have over 33 historic paintings from the 18th century that have been lovingly preserved, cleaned, repaired, that are on display. We have artifacts, we have podcasts, we have daily bell ringing, we have lectures on all different topics and festivals and concerts. I must say, just like with so many historical sites, there are you know, different perspectives and narratives around what happened at them. And and the mission system is no exception. How does the Mission Museum address various perspectives around, you know, what could be a complex history? Well, it is a complex history. The 18th century is full of of challenges. How do you explain enslaved people being owned or flogging of American military soldiers who desert George Washington's Continental Army? How do you define what it is like to be Native American and become a baptized Catholic? All of those things require a thoughtful answer. But what we do in our leadership is we don't shy away from answering those questions. What we do is we work with an advisory committee to help us have an interpretive voice in our museum experience that's respectful and that appreciates every day the contributions of our Native American builders who were baptized Catholics. We also have a lecture series. History has to be told from many perspectives. And that's one thing I know from a recent trip to the East Coast is that that's what museums are doing. So Mission San Juan is committed to working publicly in a way that addresses those complex chapters. For the Native American community, it's important that we keep traditions alive. And we have basket weaving on site every two weeks from people that are descendants of the builders. And we acknowledge their contributions at every public event. So it's not as if history doesn't continue. We're still a part of it. And in this decade and in this century, the appreciation of human rights, it it can be told in what we do today in our traditions. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Michelle. 
Thank you for the opportunity to share Mission Sal and Capistrano with you. I really appreciate the time. Michelle Lawrence Adams is the executive director of Mission San Juan Capistrano. You'll find links to everything we discussed today, including the Swallows Cam, at our website, visitcalifornia.com slash podcast. Earlier in this episode, Amanda Fraser shared her insights about some amazing spas in California. If you're interested in an over-the-top experience in the Golden State, we have the perfect video series for you. It's called Luxury Minute, and it showcases 20 extraordinary properties in the Golden State, including many with acclaimed spa offerings. From the Rancho Valencia Resort and Spa, to the Montage Laguna Beach, to the Fairmont Sonoma Mission Inn and Spa, you'll get a 60-second tour of some truly opulent properties. See them all at visitcalifornia.com slash dream365tv. 